Lord, we praise you for the Newfeld family, the extended family, and what you've done over the years through them and with them and just the way they've glorified your name, and we praise you for that. This time of sadness that uh, we know that they're rejoicing. Father is in, in heaven with you, that he has finished the course and that he has finished well. We praise you for that. We pray that the legacy that he's left behind might continue to produce the fruits that uh, he built into that family, and particularly those that are in the mission field and desiring to uh, reach a lost world. So we praise you and thank you for that family. We desire this morning also to see your word come alive inside of us, that we may also build legacies and we may build ministries and also impact the world in which we live in. So we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Book of Romans again. We're in a somewhat of a depressing passage. Mental depravity, verses 28 through 32. We have a few new people, so I'll give a, a little bit of a review of where we're at. Obviously, the setting of the book is in the city of Rome. I gave you a lot of background on that when we introduced the book and little snippets here and there about the city. But everything that took place in the city of Rome and it was being addressed by Paul has eternal application because it's inspired. So it's almost as if Paul wrote in the 21st century and is writing to our culture. And we'll see that in the passage itself. And beginning in verse 18, we have the, the beginning of the doctrinal section in the book of Romans. And Paul, right off the bat, the main theme that he's trying to develop through the entire book is that God has provided a righteousness that man does not have in himself. In fact, far from it, very opposite of that. So he starts off from the very beginning, man under God's wrath. You might say, well, that's kind of a odd way to start your doctrinal section here, but it's a reality, and he starts off with what is real, and he's going to develop that theme throughout the, the rest of the passage. And I've been mentioning, when he talks about God's wrath, it's in the present tense. So when we were in verse 18, we developed that idea, the present tense idea of the outpouring of God's wrath, and this passage is going to develop that, particularly the portion that we're in right now. So, First question, you know, you're kind of taken aback, so he gives reasons for that wrath, verses 19 through 23. And there's a primary reason. The primary reason is God has made himself evident. God has revealed himself. And we stressed when we were in that passage, all of the little indicators of that revelation being clear, no one can miss it. It's been since the foundations of the world, he says. It's been evident. They know it. Every person has known and been not only exposed to, but aware of that revelation. And the reasoner's wrath, in general, mankind rejects that revelation because we are suppressors of that truth, verse 18. So once he develops that, the reasons for wrath being poured out in a present tense sense then in verse 24, we have the rendering of that wrath. In other words, how does this wrath appear? 
how is it actually visible and how is it seen? And you can view this passage in a broad sense in terms of mankind and humanity in general. And you see this pattern throughout world history. This is how God has dealt with mankind. Man has continually been under God's wrath. He allows what we would describe as these cycles of sin, where he allows sin to have its full corrupting effects, and then he intervenes in judgment. And you see that cycle throughout Scripture. The first major one, Genesis Flood. Next one, the scattering, the confusion of languages and the scattering. You see it in the the lives of the patriarchs. You see a degeneration in the, the patriarchs in the last part of Genesis. Cycles of sin. And then God intervenes to preserve them. So he judges and saves at the same time. Tiny. Yes. Yeah. I just... Absolutely. Exactly. God begins by pouring out grace. There's always grace. Like, actually it's before Cain and Abel, it's Adam and Eve. All you see in Cain and Abel is a further degeneration as a result of the initial sin. So you see these cycles. You see it in Israel. God does a work of grace, establishes them as a nation, but their conquest is incomplete. And you see the cycles of sin, particularly in the book of Judges, but you see it throughout the history. So throughout every period of human history, you see these degenerations. So you can look at it in a broad sense. You can also look at it in terms of individual cultures and individual nations. You see the rise and fall of nations following the same pattern. God working a work of grace, particularly revealing himself. Sometimes there's revival, sometimes there's commitment, sometimes there's good things as a result, even within man. And then you see the corrupting effects of sin, and then God patiently waits for that sin to reach its ultimate corruption. And then he intervenes with judgment and salvation again. You see that in a national way. And we can look at this passage culturally. We might ask the question, where are we in that scale of God's patience? And we're probably (laughs) minutes away, (laughs) right? And you can look at it individually. In fact, uh, you can see God has always worked a work of grace, even in the unbeliever. He gives out rain for the just and unjust. And man also receives his revelation. And individually, men and women reject that revelation. And God allows the consequences of that. So we're seeing that, the rendering of wrath. The rendering of wrath is God allowing, without interfering with man's will, allowing the corrupting effects of sin to have its full effects. And that's the passage we're looking at. So we've seen the rejection of God. We're in the portion of God rendering wrath, 24 through 32. We saw there's three parts to it. Verse 24 and 25, God abandons mankind, allows the consequences of sin to have its dishonoring effects in the physical nature of man on an individual basis, but cumulative in a culture as well. And we saw that you can see that. In other words, God allows people to choose their own way. They've rejected him, so they have to substitute something else, whether it be religion, and sometimes it's a combination of religion of some form, man-made, contrary to scripture, 
but it also involves just human desires. And those human desires sometimes manifest themselves in things like addiction or other consequences. That's evidence of God just giving up. Now, as long as man has breath, there's always opportunity to repent and receive salvation and then start the rebuilding process of a life. But in general, you can see when people are addicted, they're trapped. Nowhere to turn. And they can't get out of it. There's no cure. And eventually it destroys them. Unless they do, in fact, turn to the only solution. So you see it in a physical way. Dishonoring of bodies. Last week, I focused on verses 26 and 27. It'll end up in moral degradation. And when a culture reaches the point, like Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, a point where homosexuality and other perverted sexual sins are prominent, you can tell that you're perhaps minutes away from God's intervention. So we talked about just visibly, and you can see it in our culture, our culture is at a point where even in verse 32, not only do people condone it, but they demand that you and I as believers accept it. Celebrate it. Celebrate it even, exactly. So you see a moral degeneration, and the end product of that ends in homosexuality. Now, I tried to stress, we as believers want to exhibit compassion, and I gave you the idea of what true compassion is. Everything in the passage indicates that this is bad, and we looked at, uh, I gave you a biblical basis for, for a biblical attitude towards homosexuality, which includes all the other perversions as well. What is it, L-B-G-T, with what, five other letters after it now, transgenderism and everything else, hasn't quite reached bestiality, but that's the path. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned, and the stress was, this is damaging, as every sin is. Every sin does damage. Real compassion doesn't allow a person to continue in that that is destroying them. So real compassion intervenes. And we love these people, just like an alcoholic or somebody that's addicted to gambling or whatever it may be, or... In Linda's case, uh, vacuuming, you know, her addiction. <laughs> Whatever the addiction may be, we have compassion and we love Linda, right? Everybody loves Linda. I had a new bathroom. Oh, you got a new Every week, where is it at? Yeah, one step back. <laughs> right. So you don't allow people to continue in the sin that destroys them. Homosexuality, the highest suicide rate amongst all of the categories of groups, other things, diseases, other issues, mental problems, everything else. You don't allow that to continue. So you love the sinner just like you would a thief or any other sinner or a person that, uh, what was the other one that we, the, the blue collar? Pardon me? A person that counts. Yeah. Uh, oh, wait a minute. You're getting too close. <laughs> <laughs> Or people that uh, go to the malls. Remember, we use that as an illustration. You know, greed or envy or all those. Or vegans. Vegans, yeah. <laughs> One of the worst of sins, exactly. Well, it's like a substitute. Exactly. Anything that substitutes a walk in a relationship. Literally, so many of our sins aren't even sinful themselves. I don't know anything in the Bible that can't enjoy playing golf. <laughs> 
That's right. But sometimes we're more concerned about our golf game than we are with our relationship with Jesus. Exactly. And there's so many of these things. Right. It can be sinful, even if it isn't sinful itself. Yeah. But the point being is we don't allow people to be consumed by these things. We, we want to help them, and that's true compassion. So also, we should not treat homosexuality as the, even though it may be, the worst sin that ever existed in the human race. We love them the same. And the bottom line is there's only one solution to all of these problems, is the message of the gospel and the salvation that Jesus brings. So we stressed true and real and biblical compassion. I related the story that I, over, oh, probably about a 12-year period, I had lesbian tenants. I loved them more than I did my even-believing tenants and had several opportunities to share the gospel with them. In fact, in one case, uh, several times on several occasions, because her life kept crumbling and kept falling apart. I loaned her thousands of dollars. I gave her money. I gave her all kinds of stuff and was able to, in the midst of all that, share the gospel with her and spent lots of time just working through some of that. So that's real compassion, trying to help people come into a saving relationship, and then the Lord can turn everything else around. So that's true compassion. So we spent time looking at that last week. There's a third area, verses 28 through 32. I'm not sure I can complete it, but we'll see how far we get into it. Normally, we usually have the next week to continue. So it has physical, in other words, the wrath of God allowing people to experience physical consequences of sin. That's evidence of the wrath of God in a present tense sense. There's also the moral degradation and not just in the sexual area, but that's the area that Paul deals with in 26 and 27. But beginning in verse 28 to 32, it also affects the thought processes, the mental attitudes. We live in a culture that does not have a biblical worldview. So that worldview has to substitute something else to satisfy that intellectual need that every human being has. If you don't have a biblical worldview, you're going to have something other than that. And that's all around us. And that has ramifications. And that's what Paul is talking about in this passage. So let's take a look at it. Verse 28, first of all, he reminds us of what he's been saying all along. This is, this is the reason for this wrath. Beginning of verse 28, there's a failure to acknowledge God. Just a failure to honor him. We, we've seen that already several times, all the way from verse 19 on. So verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Now, even in the New American Standard, New American Standard translation tends to be as literal as you can from Greek word to Greek word in its translation, as opposed to a more flexible, you might say, or more dynamic translation of the NIV. NIV takes a different translating philosophy. We call it dynamic translation. The whole idea is don't try to stick word for word because then your sentences become more choppy and more difficult to read. So the NIV, and it's a good translation, but you have to understand that there's limitations in that. 
The NIV, it, rather than trying to translate word for word, it attempts to capture the whole idea, let's say, of a whole sentence. And then it's a little bit looser in its translation in terms of word for word, but it tries to capture the essence of the whole thought. So it makes it a, a much easier translation to read. That's the advantage. But what you do is you lose a little bit of the literalness in terms of uh, the Greek text. Well, even the New American Standard, which is on the other end of the spectrum, it's more literal, try to be more word-to-word. It's a little bit more flexible here in this translation. Did not see fit to acknowledge God. That little phrase there, there's only two words in the Greek text. Well, God is the third word. But did not see fit to acknowledge. That kind of, it's almost a weird verbal idea even. So let me break that down a little bit for you. First of all, But before we get there, let me get to the next point. Because of that failure, in other words, man is the reason that the wrath has come, and he just reminds us. So he's kind of taking us back to what we've already developed in some detail. So we'll go over it quickly, but I want you to be aware of what's in the text there, and you'll see after we look at the next phrase where it says the abandonment of God. We've seen this phrase over and over. God gave them over. That's the heart of the sentence. And by the way, this sentence runs all the way, this is a long kind of awkward sentence that runs all the way to the end of verse 32. Normally I try to put a whole sentence on one slide, but if so, you'd have to sit way up here and just kind of look at each individual word. So I broke it down, that's why I've got the little dots here. So God gave them over. We've seen that two times already. We saw it in 24, We saw it in 26. That's kind of the stress here. He's dealing with three different areas. I've already broken the areas down. So gave them over paradidomi is the Greek word there. So that's the word. Interestingly, and I won't spend too much time because we've already looked at this, 119 times in the New Testament, it's used 50% of the time in relationship to the betrayal and handing over of Jesus to the authorities, or giving Jesus up. In other words, abandoning Jesus, that's the context of half of the usages. Sometimes it's translated to betray in terms of Judas, the whole betrayal, that word is parapidomi. Also in terms of just handing him over when he's arrested and handed over to the authorities, The Jewish nation gave him up, you might say. Gave Jesus up, rejected him, handed him over for arrest, and eventually for crucifixion. That's paradidomi, the idea of giving something up, abandoning it, turning it over to something else for destruction. That's the idea of the word there. Now, it's used of believers being delivered over to a few things, and then in this context, It's used of God giving something up, God abandoning something, God giving something over to something else. And in this context, God giving over lost humanity to these three areas, physical dishonoring, moral degeneration, and then now in verse 28, uh, mental depravity. So God gives something up. And what does he give them up to? To a depraved mind. There's the mental aspect. So it has physical consequences, rejecting God. It has moral and spiritual consequences. 
And now it also has, I think, mental consequences. And I think that's the thrust that we have here. So let's take a look at this wrath and that little phrase that I mentioned before, remind you, where it says, they did not see fit to acknowledge, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. The two words there, I'm going to show them on your screen here. First of all, sin in general, this is the sin. He's describing it. It's a failure on the part of mankind. The first word is the word dokimazo, which doesn't mean much to most of you, except the Greek students. It has the idea of examining something. In fact, the usage of it, I broke it down. It occurs, what, 22 times in the New Testament. Uh, the, the main usage is to examine something. In other words, like a scientist would examine something under a microscope. In other words, you're observing it, you're looking at its characteristics, you're discerning what it's all about. You're giving attention to it, you're, you're examining something. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight: a man must examine himself. Or thirteen five: examine yourselves. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith, examine yourself. In other words, look at, examine, make observations, etc., I think that's the heart of that word there. That did not see fit. In other words, they did not examine. So just as they did not see fit, that's dokimazo. And then there's a uh, infinitive to know something. That's epi, epinosis. Epinosis. That's the word for what? Most of you know that word. Gnosis. Knowledge. Knowledge. Gnosko is the verb. Knowledge agnostic means we don't know um, whether I exist or not. Okay, agnostic, that's where we get the word with an A before it. Epino- epinosis, if you add a, a preposition prefix like that, oftentimes it intensifies a Greek word. So this is full knowledge, that's why I have full knowledge. So you could literally translate that, uh, they did not examine God for full knowledge. And it's interesting that what we're going to see here is God allows the consequences of that to be related to the sin. The penalty or the punishment, you might say, and in the the Greek there, it's adokimas, with an A before it, which has the idea of depraved or worthless, you might even, in some contexts it's translated worthless. And then it talks about the mind, which mind is the place where we find full knowledge. So the penalty and the consequence goes along with the sin. In other words, it's in concord, you might say, with the the, the sin of neglecting to investigate the reality of God, even though all men know that there has to be a God because of what we saw in verses 19 and 20. There is truly no such thing as a genuine atheist. An atheist is simply someone who has suppressed the truth of God that God has already put inside of him. They've suppressed it so far that they've convinced themselves. In fact, their deluded mind or their depraved mind has convinced them that God does not exist. That's way down the road. Okay? 
So we have all these little words there that indicates that oftentimes God punishes in accordance with the sin and oftentimes to the degree of the sin as well. So does that make sense here? So adokimas, depraved, and nun, mind. So that's what God has locked people into. And you can't break away from that. In other words, the natural mind cannot detect things outside of the natural realm. It cannot detect that that is spiritual. And particularly after he's rejected what God has revealed that is spiritual. Does that make sense? I use the analogy. Uh, if you get real quiet, don't say a thing. Well, you hear the little buzzing of the projector up there. But if you try to listen to the radio waves that are bombarding this room, every radio station within 100 miles of Albuquerque is blasting, you turn the volume up, radio waves, but none of us can hear them, right? Because we don't have the right receptor. We can't receive those. We need something that translates that into a way that we can detect them. We call that a radio, in case you didn't know. Remember that there still are radios, <laughs> not just iPhones. <clears throat> but anyway, what it does is it translates all the waves that are just bombarding this room, but we can't hear any of that. We don't have that capability. Similarly, we don't have the receptor to detect spiritual data that God bombards into this room, revelation, you might say, particularly when we have calloused our senses to what God has already revealed. And we end up with a depraved mind, totally insensitive to spiritual things. That makes sense? But we can't operate in a vacuum, so those minds must, must uh, manifest itself in, in different ways, and we substitute ideas that usually end up destructive. So, God has abandoned mankind, and that abandonment takes the form of mental distortion of truth, reality. The unbeliever does not have a real estimate of reality. He's totally unaware of it. In other words, he's unconscious to it. It's not till God convicts him of sin and illumines him to spiritual truth of his lostness, does the light begin to turn on, and he begins to see some things that are spiritual. And then uh, through that illumination, God brings insight into a reality of the solution, which is Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross. So God has abandonment or abandoned mankind to a degradation of a lifestyle. That's the next part. It starts with a depraved mind where you see things totally out of whack with reality. Reality is unseen. And that's the last part of the verse. So God gave them over to a depraved mind. So everything now is distorted in terms of reality to do those things which are not proper. And where do... Our thoughts come from, in other words, where do ideas come from, and where do they go, where do they lead us? Simple biblical principle, source of evil thoughts, what does Jesus say? The heart, that's Matthew fifteen nineteen. for out of the heart, in other words, the inward soul, you might say, or spirit, or inward nature of mankind, the heart, which in some context includes the mind, 
For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Now there's the thoughts. But it doesn't stop with just thinking. It extends. That thinking extends to actions, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. And the list is not exhausted. Jesus is just giving examples of what results from an evil heart. And Paul is describing not only the evil heart, but a depraved mind. And we also know that a depraved mind results, as Jesus also indicates in that verse, results in evil attitudes and evil actions. Can't escape it. And that is what you can see in a culture. You can see manifestations of it. And in some cases, you could say God has given up the American culture. Mm-hmm. Now, the only hope is revival of individuals and then massive revival of the culture, a massive turning to Jesus Christ. And that massive turning may result in transformation of individuals that may have a ripple effect upon the rest of the culture. Now, in the past, God has brought massive revival. For example, in Britain, in the Great Awakening and other periods of time, where the culture was transformed. But it wasn't uh, because men just said, oh, we need a better culture. It was because of the influence of what God did in individual lives. If that were to take place in our culture, that would be the only thing that would reverse the trends of where we are headed right now. Make sense? So a depraved mind results in evil attitudes and actions. And we can view that. We see it all around us. And Paul's going to give us a a long list, the longest list in the New Testament. So you don't mistake it. Uh, You can't miss it. Just go to work. You'll see these things at work. You'll see these things in your unbelieving relatives. You'll see these things in your neighbors. God abandoning people to their own thinking, their own thought process that result in all of these actions. And all of these actions are destructive. And the only solution to every single one of these is not reforming or in some way changing. The only solution is conversion, where God transforms the heart so that now you have new thoughts. And then the process of renewing our minds begins. And as we renew our minds, then we can better not only see reality, but live out what God desires. So a depraved mind results in evil attitudes and actions. And that's what we have beginning in verse 29. We have a description of that degradation. And it's pretty explicit. And you can't miss it. Just look around at the world. Okay? Now, let's break this down. I see this long list. And you can see unrighteousness, uh, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, haters of God, etc. All the way to verse 31. You can break it down into three groups grammatically. Now, in studying it, I tried to come up with catchy little ways of describing each one. I don't know if I didn't come up with anything. Maybe you can't, but... They don't seem to be categories of any kind, not totally random. There is some alliteration, particularly towards the end of the list. They all start with A, the last five, I think, or so. But I wasn't able to 
see necessarily categories, three different categories. But at least grammatically, there are three groups. And here's the little grammatical clues that puts them together. First of all, the first group starts with a participle being filled with, being filled, well, the with kind of goes with the structure of the words that follow. So you have a participle. You also have a, a word for all that probably goes with each one of them. And each one of these is in the, in the Greek text, the dative case, which is different from the other two groups. Okay. So you have a participle plus the dative. And then you have a word, full. And then all of the following, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they're not in the dative case. They are in the genitive case. They're descriptive of what's this fullness of. And the whole idea here, not only beginning at the beginning here, filled is this idea, is this is reaching its... Full corruption, you might say. And in the culture, you see people full of these things. And then you have you have a semicolon in the English to kind of break it up. Semicolon there to break that up. And you have words that are supplied. It's not in the Greek text. That's why I've italicized them. But in the New American Standard, they are, to make it somewhat of a sentence, if you will, or at least a part of a larger sentence. So you have they are... And the reason they supply that is because all of the next 12, and there's 12 of them, the next 12 are in the accusative case. So they're all kind of broken down according to that grammatical, uh, all that may not mean any of you, but <laughs> I look at it in detail, so just sharing it with you. So we have three groups. That's why on your outline sheet, and by the way, the one that I printed out, I've actually added a few more little things in there. So let's take a look at the first group being filled. And I don't know how much time we want to give to these. I think most of them are pretty evident. But being filled, and the stress here is this idea, uh, this is not just casual. It's not just incidental, but it is kind of characteristic. And some people have these characteristics even. Unrighteousness. Now, every unbeliever has a standing before God that is unrighteous. I think it has to do with standing. We'll talk about that. Now, I insert immorality in here, and I put it in parentheses because there are some manuscripts, some Greek manuscripts that include it. So there wasn't enough for some uh, scribes. And it's possible that you would also include the idea of immorality. Now, he spent all of verses 26 and 27 dealing with the issue of morality. So it may be part of the inspired text or it may not. Most of the uh, translators omit it. So it's not there in the New American Standard. So unrighteousness, perhaps immorality, wickedness, greed, evil. So that. You have the participle filled with or being filled plus the dative. And you have five of, or four or five. First one, unrighteousness. That has to do with standing. It's a legal word, standing before the law. And if you have a proper standing before the law, and if it's just, say, a civil law, then you are standing in good standing with the law. You are in a righteous position. When it comes to God, 
The word is used in terms of an ultimate and in terms of a spiritual standing. All of humanity stands in a position of unrighteousness. That's how he begins, verse 18, unrighteous. So that's the primary and overwhelming position, you might say, of all of lost humanity. So it starts from there. And what that means is there's no capacity to discern spiritual things apart from what God makes evident and what God reveals. But you can't go out and discover God, so to speak. You can't philosophize and and figure out who God is. Because in an unrighteous standard, we are separate from God. So it has to do with standards, and it's against standards. You see that all around. This is the unbelieving world with everything that goes with it. And then you have the immorality, which would include the sexual sins, and there's many of them, and I got that in parentheses again because of the textual problem. Wickedness has more the idea of hostile activity, where people take their attitudes out in a physical way. Wickedness, whether it be financial, where people cheat you, where people uh, cheat the government or whatever, that's wickedness, hostile activity, or just outright antagonism hollering, screaming, yelling, and then that leads to physical, uh, what do you call it, physical uh, damage. Thirdly, greed. We don't know anything about that one, right? The tendency of not being satisfied with what we have. We always want more. And this is a, this is a tendency. This is the old nature. And by the way, these are characteristics of the unbeliever. But you and I as believers, we're immune to all of these, right? Right, Linda? Well, we still have the sin nature, and because we have the sin nature, we're not immune to any of these. In fact, we can walk, even though we are saved, and I think, I believe in eternal security, and our destiny is not threatened in any way, but we can walk in a lifestyle that is contrary to what God would have us to do. We can be in an unrighteous, ongoing lifestyle We need to confess that and bring that to God. We can also get involved in all kinds of sexual immorality as well, as well as we can take out our aggressions on other people. The flesh can do that. In fact, sometimes when you become a believer, you become more aware of your past and your tendencies and your sin. And as believers, sometimes we do things that are even worse than what we did before we were believers because of the flesh. And certainly one of the areas is greed as well. Not being satisfied with what God has provided for us as believers. Now, there's nothing wrong with pursuing self-interest and uh, doing things that will benefit the family and that sort of thing. But if it becomes excessive to the neglect of other things, spiritual things particularly, then it becomes sin, much like the unbeliever. And we live in a world where greed dominates material possessions, uh, materialism in general. Just look around. You can see the wrath of God. God letting people destroy themselves through the accumulation of material things. People will kill for some things. All right? They're destroying themselves. Then the fifth one, if you include this one, uh, if you include number two, just the general word for badness. Kakia. Even sounds bad. That's the word that's translated evil in the New American Standard. It can include 
any variety in any area, kind of a general term. Just if it wasn't stated specifically elsewhere, this one covers everything else. General badness, or you might even say just general evil in every form, whether it be thoughts, whether it be motives, whether it be attitudes or overt actions. Kakia is the Greek word. So that's the participle plus the dative. Now, as believers, we need to continually battle the flesh. The only solution for the believer is the power of the Holy Spirit. And in Galatians, we have the fruit of the Spirit. So we can look at each of these and say, where does the fruit of the Spirit apply? So which of the fruit of the Spirit, what is it? Love, joy, peace, patience, <coughs> kindness, goodness, what is it? Self-control, whatever. You got it? Which one would you uh, associate or most prominent? You could add two or three to these. How do we com- combat a walk that is contrary to God's will? Any suggestions? Faithfulness would be good. Yeah. Be the violence of God says about it. Yeah. Probably goodness as well. In other words, do the very opposite. Think of ways where we can, rather than walk contrary to God, Think of ways where now I can do things that uh, benefit uh, brothers and sisters or even the unbeliever. Obviously, immorality, what's the one that stands out there? Hmm? Morality? Well, that's not the fruit of the... not mentioned in the, the list. There's one that's mentioned, though, I think. The obvious one? Nope. Well, goodness again, you could say that, but I think self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Would you say, Connie? In fact, you can use the whole composite of the fruit of the Spirit to combat every one of them. Wickedness, you could say self-control again, but again, I would say goodness. Greed, just to be good, yeah, I'll go along with you. Uh, Kindness is one of the fruits. So we consciously substitute that that is within us. So if we have a problem, in other words, this is kind of a recurring sin in my life or whatever, Counting is mine, yeah. You're right. Greed, if it happens to be, you know, one of the sins, then you counteract it with something that goes against it. So uh, instead of thinking of simply myself, now I need to kind of concentrate on thinking, how can I be kind to others? And maybe giving to others, which would be the opposite of always supplying to my own. I found to try to get yourself. Yep. The fruit well, of the Spirit. Trying to know that the Holy Spirit yes. has to be bigger that way. Right. And once I then I I deceiving and then house Yes. But I think yeah, it's no, being I filled filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit and allowing the Spirit That's to overcome. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. That's a starting point. And then just general badness. You need general goodness. Just overall goodness. Make sense. So. We combat that. Now, the unbeliever has no access to the fruit of the Spirit. So in terms of helping your fellow workers or your family that are unbelievers, everything that you do for them should be directed towards bringing them to Christ so that the Holy Spirit can enable them to overcome, whether it be wickedness, greed, or evil, or whatever, or immorality, wherever. That's not only true of things like alcoholism, but every area as well even the blue-collar or white-collar sins like greed, right? And then we have, so that's that's the uh, 
participle with these each in the dative. Now we have full of, a Greek word there, and then all of these reflect the of. You could say full of envy, full of murder, full of strife, full of deceit, full of malice. They're all in the genitive, and they all kind of modify the idea of this fullness. So we have completeness here, or full corruption of sin. And let's look at them, and that will be a good place to stop, and we'll pick up verse 30 some other time. So we have the word full of, and actually just full, and the of is part of the genitive case in the Greek language, which to most of you, that who cares, right? Just three groups. First one is envy, envy. And sometimes it manifests itself. We see others, they have they have skills, they have attributes, they have things that uh, we don't have, so we desire it. That's a sin. God wants us to have contentment, satisfaction in what he has given. Now, that's not to quell any idea of self-improvement and growth. Uh, I think God desires that, but there's also a sinful aspect to it. Honey. From, it's a different... I think there's a distinction. There's two different words, and Paul uses two different words there. One seems to be more in terms of material things. I don't know if this is the distinction, but I see this more as more viewing myself and viewing others in terms of, you know, well, they've got this skill, and I wish I had it. And we obsess over that and neglect what God has given us, yep. what we are not. Murder. Now, remember what Jesus says about murder. It's not just the overt act. In fact, he takes the community in the first century, the the Jewish people in the first century. He says, you have heard that thou shalt not murder. What does he say? But I say, angry with your brother. You've already committed murder in your heart. Yeah, and what he's doing is he's showing that the intent of the Mosaic law goes all the way to the heart. In other words, it's not just an external legal code. It's a code that goes all the way to the heart of man. And where murder begins is it begins in that hateful, that angry, angriness that resides in the the believer. So when we speak of murder, and particularly in this context, it's not only the overt act, but it is what that act, where that the roots of that act. And it's the heart. In fact, that was on the list that Jesus gave right after he said evil thoughts. The next one he said is murder. So it comes from the inward being, the inner nature, the heart. So murder even in the heart where you desire the damage or the elimination of someone or the getting rid of them. In other words, get them out of my life, that attitude. Okay, so that's murder. Strife. This is more a... Beating up, it can be a verbal beating up of someone, and it can also be the physical, just putting someone down, beating them up, strife, deceit. No one has this, right? No believer ever exhibits deceit. I couldn't think of a better word than just to deceive or to present something that is not reality as if it were reality, so deceit. We are tempted in that, uh, get into an uncomfortable situation. Well, uh, you know, this little white lies, we call them, right? 
Well, the unbeliever is locked into deceit because he's rejected truth. He's re rejected reality. And the manifestation, some people have a hard time controlling their emotions and strike out in various ways. And sometimes it ends in, in murder. And most unbelievers are plagued with never being satisfied with what they have. And the fifth one is malice. A different word from that general idea of general badness or wickedness. Different word, malice. It's always making things worse than what they are. Malice. So those are the genitives along with the word full. Spirit, how do we combat envy? We find self-satisfaction in meeting others' needs, in kindness again, murder, love, very opposite. Peace, sometimes you need to quell those desires to strike out at people and express anger in a sinful way by gaining inner peace. What about strife? Any suggestions on it? Love and peace again, maybe. Deceit, faithfulness, being faithful first to God. Faithful in relationship to others, seeking their best, the best for them, rather than trying to deceive them. Malice, gentleness, being gentle with people, kind of the opposite. Patience, these are the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, good place to stop. We'll pick up in verse 30 next time. Anyone want to close for us? Do you see these in the culture? Are these evident? Can you see the wrath of God? So we all have it, too. I mean, yeah, we've been we there. So yeah, guerrilla warfare against the evil world, such that we're not part of the problem, we are part of the solution. We've got... Yes. So, I mean, Linda said that we all struggle with sin, because we have a sin nature. But you had also said that all sins from the Spirit. I don't know, I had a conversation with somebody who was saying... Like, kind of making the argument you had said, like, you not appear as a believer, then, um, also, I, I just kind of had the thought, like, well, you can, you can have a number that has. Yeah. So, can, do you, do you have any, I don't yeah. know, thoughts on that? Just a well, bit. everyone's crea also created in the image of God, and there are some elements of the image of God that the unbeliever doesn't lose, so. Some of that may come from what God has put within people. That's grace. And, but it always gets distorted and it always gets turned. In other words, I'm going to love you because it's beneficial for me. Or I'm going to do something for you because I hope in the future you do something. You know, that's it. So it always, there's always a dis distorted uh, self-centeredness. So yes, the unbeliever, he can do acts of kindness, but apart from... Yeah, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And he's talking about you can do nothing spiritual. It has no eternal effect because he is outside of a relationship. Does that help? Yeah, I think it's attributed to the image of God that even the unbelieving question wants to. We could. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For the believer, we need to walk in the spirit. For the unbeliever, he needs to come into a saving, converting relationship with Jesus Christ. You want to do it? Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for you who instructed you were the elemental of peace and the little of kings. Please guide us upon the old lights that were of the kingdom. Because save us, we seek you, Lord, be merciful to you.
man. Closing thought. We have the only solution for mankind's problem, whatever it may be and whatever way it manifests. And that's the gospel. See you next week, Lord willing.